Good morning. Uh, our Bible readings actually come from a range of um, passages throughout Deuteronomy from chapter 19 to chapter 23. Deuteronomy 19, 4 to 7. This is the rule concerning anyone who kills a person and flees there for safety. Anyone who kills a neighbor unintentionally without malice or forethought. For instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood. And as he swings his ax to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. That man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him even though he is not deserving of death, since he did it to his neighbor without malice or forethought. This is why I command you to set aside yourself for yourselves three cities. Deuteronomy 19.15. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offence they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 21.15-21. If a man has two wives and he loves one but not the other, and both bear him sons, but the firstborn is the son of the wife he does not love, when he wills his property... To his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves in preference to his actual firstborn, the son of the wife he does not love. He must acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. The son is the, the, that son is the first sign of his father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid." Deuteronomy 22, 28 and 29. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is pledged to be married and rapes her they are, and they are discovered, he shall pay her 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. Deuteronomy 23, 1 and 2. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden marriage, nor any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. Deuteronomy 23, 16 to 19. Let them live among you wherever they like and in whatever town they choose. Do not oppress them. No Israelite, man or woman, is to become a shrine prostitute. You must not bring the earnings of a female prostitute or of a male prostitute into the house of the Lord your God to pay any vow, because the Lord your God detests them both. Do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. Well, hello, I'm Brian Harris, Service Pastor at Large here. Welcome to you, whether you're here in person or online. And how did you feel as you heard those verses? 
some of them did you kind of think a little bit like, it says what? <laughs> I mean, there's some pretty impossibly difficult Bible passages there. And uh, I felt really sorry for Pete last week because he had drawn one of the short straws and he had to deal with Deuteronomy chapter 13, which looks at the question, or which at surface reading at any rate seems to justify religious violence. But then I felt even sorrier for myself when I looked at the passages that I had drawn because they're pretty tough as well. And today I'm wanting us to ask this question, so, so what are we to make of impossibly difficult Bible passages? What, what are we to make of impossibly difficult Bible passages? And there certainly are some there. And, and let me say right up front, listen, some of the topics we're dealing with today, they, they're pretty adult topics, uh, and they could be emotionally impacting. And if they're too difficult for you, because listen, they deal with things like castration, rape, illegitimacy, I mean, some pretty tough topics here. Uh, if, if you just think, I'm just not in a space to even hear that being spoken about, that is fine. Just, just slip out, that's absolutely okay. Your emotional well-being is always best. But if you're up, up to it, there are actually important passages for us to think about. And we do need to think about, you know, well, what does it say? Why does it say it? How are we going to make sense of this? How are we going to make sense of this at all? And as we go through uh, these, these passages and, in Deuteronomy from chapter 19 all the way through to chapter 26, uh, as you look at them, there are... There are many that are just common sense. They, 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 they're not a problem. You look at them, you say they're absolutely fine. And we started with some of them. So, so, so let's start off with this passage about cities of refuge. So what were the cities of refuge about? And the Israelites were told to have three, and later on they, in fact, instructed to, to have another three. What happened was this. In the course of life, sometimes difficult things happen. Accidents happen. And the passage itself thinks about one particular situation. So maybe you and your neighbor, you're busy chopping down a tree. Uh, you don't realize your axe is a little bit dodgy. As you kind of uh, pull it back, the, the head of the axe uh, kind of flies off. Your neighbor gets hit in the head. Your neighbor dies. Uh, you're a small community. People are furious with you because, yeah, I mean, it was an accident, but couldn't you have taken more care? And, you know, was it really an accident? And and, and like all the emotions that, 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 that arise in an Israelite society where accidents did happen, uh, as in any society, sometimes things just got out of hand and mob justice would take place. And people would actually have not intended to have killed someone, it would have been genuine manslaughter, uh, but they would have been about to be lynched. And cities of refuge were put in place to basically say, here are cities that you can run to and they will welcome you, and they will protect you. They will hear your case, yes, and if it was deliberate, then there's no protection for you. But if it was an accident, then they will look after you, and they will take care of you. And you can stay there for as long as you need to stay. You can rebuild your life here. In fact, it's, it's the start of the early, early commitment in the Bible towards genuinely practicing hospitality, care of the other, saying, but we've got to look out for other people. Sometimes terrible tragedies in life happen, and when they do, we've got to help people build their lives back together again. So, so, so there are plenty within these, these chapters, there, there are plenty of instructions like that that you look at and they, they, they find that's a different world, they work things out in a different way to the way in which we would work them out, uh, but nevertheless they, they're not problematic and we can understand why they're there. But there are other ones that are much more difficult. Like you rape someone and what must you do? You must pay the father 50 shekels and then marry her. And what's more, you must never divorce her. So, like, if you're in the 21st century, you've been told you must marry your rapist. Oh, my goodness, does it really say that? Actually, it does. So what are we going to make about that? 
or you have been subjected to the most extraordinary cruelty, one of the cruelest practices that the human race has devised, that of castration, practiced quite widely in the ancient world uh, for people who are going to work in royal households so that, that the servants who were there would be no threat because if you were castrated, then there was no way that you would seduce the queen. There was no way that you would rape any of the daughters. Uh, so quite a common practice in royal households. And suddenly this passage, uh, Deuteronomy 23 says, so, so that's been done to you. Uh, let, let you just understand, you're excluded from God's house, and not just you, but 10 generations on, there's no place for you. And even if you're illegitimate, you're told, gosh, you're excluded for 10 generations from actually being part of God's people? I mean, wow, aren't these people victims and they've been treated like villains? How, how are we going to make sense of these passages? What, what do we say to them? Has the Bible made a mistake? Should they be there? Uh, what do you think? What, what do you respond and it is actually in a lot of passages like this that there's the, the famous story that was told. Richard Dawkins, who's probably the world's most famous atheist, uh, had been given a lecture. And at the end of the meeting, uh, he just asked for anyone who wanted to ask any questions. A, a man raised his hands and said, Mr. Dawkins, I think you pretty much persuaded me. I think I really should become an atheist. But are there any books that you think I should read? I think that I must just think a little bit more about this. Are there any books that, 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 that I should read that would maybe help me to become an atheist? And without batting an eyelid, Richard Dawkins said, oh, absolutely, read the Bible. If that doesn't make you an atheist, nothing will. Now, that's an astonishing statement to have made, an astonishing statement. And you say, he say that because as Christians we say to people read the Bible that will lead you to faith and here's the world's most famous atheist saying read the Bible it will make you an atheist well I guess Richard Dawkins has passages like Deuteronomy in mind and he would say you know stop cherry-picking the Bible the trouble is you keep on going to the Sermon on the Mount you keep on going to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 yes I agree those are lovely chapters and they're very beautiful but what are you going to make about passages like marry your rapist or you you, you, you know engage in religious warfare or you know what how how do you deal with these these are very very real questions and we can't sidestep them and I think the first thing that I need to say is let's stop pretending that these passages aren't there Let's stop pretending that these passages aren't there, because they are. And if you're trying to persuade a friend of yours who maybe is an atheist, particularly if they're a well-read atheist, I can assure you, you might not know that these verses are there. They do. They absolutely do. And if you find someone who is a serious atheist, they will come to you and they will fling these verses at you just like that. So, so there's absolutely no point in trying to pretend that they're not there. They are there, and you need to think about them. We all need to think about them. What do they say to us? How do they challenge us? How should we respond to them? Rowan Williams, who was the former Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, very profoundly said, one of the tests of actual faith, as opposed to bad religion, is whether it stops you ignoring things. Bad religion is something that means that you ignore things. One of the tests of actual faith, as opposed to bad religion, is whether it stops you ignoring things. Faith is most fully itself and most fully life-giving when it opens your eyes and uncovers for you a world larger than you ever thought. And of course, therefore, a world that's a bit more alarming than you ever thought. The test of true faith is how much more it lets you see and how much it stops you denying, resisting, ignoring aspects of what is real. So let's start off and say, we're not gonna deny that there are some very difficult passages in the Bible. And let's remember also that the Bible is an adult book 
the Bible is an adult book. Now, now that's actually something that, that we should remember because most of us read it first time or were exposed to it when we were children. And don't misunderstand me, absolutely right to teach your, teach your children the Bible. But because we hear so many Bible stories as children, we think we've been there, we've done that, we've got the story, and we think about it no more. And we sometimes don't actually face up to, to things which, if we were first exposed to the story as adults, we would immediately have thrown all kinds of different questions at, at the passage. Take, for example, Noah's Ark. You know, I, I, I was first exposed to that story probably when I was three or four years old. You know, so as a three or four-year-old, you're told, you know, there's a great flood, everyone gets drowned except Noah and his family, and all the animals and everything destroyed except, except two of each kind, seven of, of, of certain other kinds, uh, and then the world starts all over again. And you think, oh, cool, that's nice, you know, that's very interesting. I mean, it says what? It says that God exterminates everyone except one family, and even if you think those people are terribly evil, what about all those animals? I mean, what, why the destruction of the planet? I mean, I don't think there are a few little ethical concerns that we should think about there. I mean, you need to dig into that. You, you, you can't just hold it like a three-year-old. You've got to say this is an adult book, and we need to plunge into it, and while I'm not going to try and unpack that particular one today, we need to come back to them, and we need to think a little bit more deeply about them, because people who are serious about about faith have to. This is our story. How do we make sense of it? So how then do we, do we as 21st century listeners approach this ancient text and discover it as a profoundly life-giving book? Because I want to be absolutely clear about this. I think the Bible is an amazing book. It is the most life-giving text that you can possibly imagine. And it is a book of extraordinary beauty. And, and it is profound beyond the, 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 the describing of it. I absolutely, utterly, and totally believe that. But it is an adult book, and we have to approach it in a sensible and wise way. So, so how do we go about doing that? And let me suggest a couple of things that, that probably are quite helpful. Firstly, whenever we read the Bible, don't read it at the surface. Don't read it at the surface. In other words, don't worry too much about the instruction. Ask, what is the concern behind the instruction? Don't worry too much about the instruction, because we often read, read Shelley. Now, what does it say? Well, then I must do that. Don't, don't read the instruction so much as the concern behind the instruction. Now, now, let me unpack that a little bit. So, in what I'm about to say, I'm not going to try and defend uh, Deuteronomy chapter 22. It's, it's, it's quite a distressing passage. But, but listen to it, and then, then try to listen to it, not for the instruction, but for the concern. Deuteronomy 22, verse, uh, where we, uh, verses 28 and 29. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her, and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver, he must marry the young woman, for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. Okay, so that's, that's a tough instruction. Rape someone, marry them, never divorce them. You, you, know, you listen in the 21st century and you say, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. That's, that's more than traumatizing. Please, don't even go there. Don't even try to defend that. Well... No, I'm not going to try and defend it, but I am going to try and understand it. 
So, so I'm going to try and understand. I'm going to ask the question, what is the concern behind the passage? Well, the concern's actually not that difficult to, 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 to gather. Stop thinking 21st century. Think yourself back uh, kind of 4,000 years ago. Greatest concern in society was economic vulnerability. Someone, whatever you think of it, if a woman was considered to not be a virgin, she was not marriageable. Didn't matter how she lost her virginity. If she wasn't a virgin, she was considered to be unmarriageable. I'm not going to try and defend that. I'm just, I'm just noting that. That was the practice. That was how people thought. So you're unmarriageable. What happens to you? You're a woman. This is a patriarchal society. You have no man to look after you. Now, I'm not going to try and defend patriarchy, but I am just going to note that that's the world that was. It just is that's the world that was. So let's not be 21st century idealists. Just, just actually go back there and say, so here's this, I mean, this probably 13-year-old girl. She's walking home one day. A man rapes her. And in the society of that day, without any laws or protection, she suddenly is excluded from society, She's unmarriageable. She will actually starve to death. That's the reality. That's the reality. And Deuteronomy comes in and says, hold on. You do that to someone. In speaking to the man, you do that to someone. You recognize this. You are responsible for that person for the rest of your life. The first thing you have to do is you, you don't just walk away from there. You don't just say that's okay. The first thing you've got to do is you've got to go to a family, you've got to pay them 50 shekels of silver. That's the normal bride price. You've got to act as though she's been paid as a normal bride. Now, I'm not going to try and defend bride prices, but I'm just going to note that's the practice of the day. So you've got to do that. You don't get yourself out of that. Thank you very much. And what is more, you must marry this person. In other words, you take on the financial care of this person. And what is more, because divorce is allowed in society at that time, and quite easily you could get divorced in those times, in this case, you can never divorce the person. You are never allowed to. In other words, you can never get out of your financial responsibility for what you've done. Now, now whatever you think of the passage, that's the concern. You have left this woman in a position that she's going to starve to death. No, you don't get out of it. You have to provide for her. You have to provide for her forever, and you can't get out of that responsibility. Now, underneath that is, I think, a pretty sound principle. It's a principle of being people are trying to think through how do, you, how do you deal with things when they go wrong. They're thinking about it 4,000 years ago. And today, how about this? And this might feel a little bit uncomfortable, but today, Church has had to face up to the fact that sometimes people have been, have been raped within the church. People have been sexually abused within the church. And you say, what do you do about that? What can you do about that? There's, you can never possibly defend that. But this passage comes back and looks, and what do we do today? Well, we have a redress scheme. And around the world, churches are paying hundreds of millions of dollars in redress to victims of sexual abuse within churches. It's a terrible, terrible evil that's taken place. But this passage says, you never do less than that. Hey, if you've been one of those people who said, why would churches pay redress? Why would you do that? I beg your pardon. Deuteronomy comes and says, listen, that's your very least responsibility. You might never be able to make emotional amends. You might not be able to put that right. But at least you take on your financial responsibility. So, so, so do you see what I mean when I say, you know, when we look at the text, don't worry too much just about the instruction Think about what the concern is. So the concern of the text is, what is going to happen to this young girl? She's, 
she can starve to death unless we have some protection. And the, and, and the, and the take one solution is, well, well, this could be the solution. Now, how do we know? You, you, you say to me, Brian, yeah, but how do you know that the concern is primarily financial? Well, look at another little section here. Let's look at, where is it? Deuteronomy chapter 22, and I must just try and find it. Uh, Deuteronomy 22, 15 to 21. Deuteronomy 22, 15 to 21. Again, a slightly strange passage to us. If someone has two wives, so <laughs> how can someone have two wives? Well, actually, bigamy was part of the ancient world and just, just was. If someone has two wives, it's not defending it, it's just noting it, so not uncommon, someone has two wives. Someone has two wives and he loves one but not the other. Hmm, trouble when you have more than one wife. Who's the favorite? He loves one but not the other, and bears, both bear him sons. But the firstborn is the son of the wife he does not love. When he wills his property to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves in preference to the actual firstborn, the son of the wife he does not love. He must acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. So, so that's just quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, I don't know what you think of that passage, but it's been quite practical. It's saying, okay, so you've got a couple of wives, uh, and one of them you actually really rather like. And of course, we know in the Bible there are marriages like that. Jacob, for example, uh, loved Rachel, not Leah. And, and, and there you go. There, 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 there was the wife who was loved. There was the wife who was unloved. And the passage then says, so, so what happens to the children you know, of these different wives? You are going to be tempted to say, oh, you know, you're my favorite wife. I really love you. I will do all kinds of special favors for your children. I will treat them preferentially. And this passage says, no, hold on. For society to function well, well, you have an economic responsibility to all your children. And the way that society worked at that time was basically the firstborn son had basically got a double share of the inheritance. Why did they get a double share? Because they had to be the patriarch of the family. They had to make sure that everyone was provided for. So the first one, that was their responsibility, and they had to be in a financial position to take on that responsibility. And what this passage is saying is, you might kind of think, uh, you know, to this, this, this wife you have that you don't like very, very, very much, you know, so what about you? You're out the way, I don't care for you. And you might show favoritism to a younger son. Don't do that, is what it's saying. And again, you might say, okay, so, so interesting. Uh, but it does show the concern is financial. You, you know, it's not romantic. So the Bible says, not interesting about, you know, all this gushy, you know, which is the wife I love and which is the wife I don't love. It's like, hold on, have you fairly provided for all your offspring? Are you taking responsibility for who you have? And all the way through into the 21st century, actually, though this might seem quite strange, we're still guided by it, aren't we? So you have a marriage that doesn't work out, you get divorced, you're still responsible for the kids you have. You can't walk away and not pay maintenance. I mean, that's basically what it's saying in a 21st century context, isn't it? I mean, you think that you can just have fall in love with someone else and rush after them and bad luck to the family that's left behind? I beg your pardon, the passage says. You remain responsible. You are always responsible. And the place in which you begin is an economic responsibility. That's the 21st century taken it. So, so, so do you see what I'm saying? Don't. Don't read at the surface. Don't, don't worry too much about the specific instruction. Ask yourself, what is the concern that's going on beneath here? What is the concern that is driving this? And, and linked to that, 
remember what, what we could speak about as Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. Now, all the way back in 1943, you've probably heard of this theory, Abraham Maslow devised a theory of human need, and he said that as humans, we have a hierarchy of needs. And he said that at the most basic level, we have physiological needs. We have the need to, for food, we have the need for drink, we need to be able to breathe. Secondly, at a second level, we have a need for safety and security. Thirdly, for love and belonging. Fourthly, for the esteem of others. Fifthly, for self-actualization. And he said it's a hierarchy, and he said that until your first level needs are met, you don't worry too much about your second level ones. So for example, um, maybe you are starving to death, and there's some food there, but it's quite moldy, and it's looking quite dodgy, and you think that you might actually, I mean, you'll definitely land up with diarrhea from eating it, like, if you're starving, you still eat it, don't you? Because you're going to starve. I mean, what's the option? Diarrhea or starving? I mean, you, 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 you're just going to eat the bread. And, and, and that's what Mads is saying. There, things become more important depending on where you are in that hierarchy. Now, when we read the Bible in the 21st century, we forget the gratitude with which we should read everything. Because we should read and we should remind ourselves, we are in a world where we primarily focus on our esteem needs and our self-actualization needs. And we're all interested in, how can I be the best version of myself that I could possibly be? And how can I win the regard of others? And, and you know, how can I live in this super company? We don't even think about what it would be to have nothing to eat, nothing to drink, nowhere to stay. But the Bible is primarily written in a world where that was the most fundamental concern of people. What do you do when you have nothing to eat, when you have nowhere to stay, where you have nothing to drink? What do you do then? Maslow's needs are the first layer need. And so many of the instructions that, that we read, we are aghast because like in our very privileged 21st century world, this is not the, 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 the greatest way to self-actualization and self-esteem and everything else. They beg your pardon. People are just trying to live and they're just trying to get by. And, and if we forget that, we stand in judgment of the text, whereas rather we should stand in gratitude next to the text. Thank you, God that in our life we have lived, that we can in fact think about actualization, that we can in fact think about being the best version of ourselves, that we live in a world of great freedom. Thank you, thank you that we have made some progress. And so, so, so we should be grateful rather than condemning, and we should understand texts like this, which we're, we're, we're written for people in quite a different life circumstance. Third principle, so first principle, don't worry too much about the instruction, worry about the concern behind. Second, remember the hierarchy of human needs. Thirdly, remember that revelation in the Bible is progressive and it's a divine human dance. Revelation in the Bible is progressive and there is a divine human dance. What do I mean by that? I mean, the Bible is God's love story to us and it's God's, God's turning up and God's saying, here I am, this is who I am. But it's a progressive story. And it's a story of humans who begin, and they really don't get God at all. They don't get God at all. And it's about God coming and saying, so here I am. And it's about humans saying, okay, I get this. And they get a little bit of it. And sometimes they get, get a little bit, of it, and it's right. But sometimes parts of what they get, they, they actually get wrong. And later on in the Bible, the Bible kind of self-corrects for us. And it, it points out that actually it, 
wasn't quite right, and the first understanding of it wasn't quite what it should be, because there is progressive revelation. Now, now, now you say, well, that sounds a bit dodgy. No, 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 absolutely. That, that, that is the way the Bible works. Let, 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 let's look at it. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 23. And again, here are some, some tricky passages. Deuteronomy 23, verses 1 and 2. And this is about people who are going to be excluded from the people of God. They have no place there, it says. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting, in other words, no one who's been castrated, no one who's been made a eunuch, may enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden marriage, and depending on your translation, and no illegitimate offspring, from such a marriage may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the 10th generation. So, when you read that today with Australian ears, I mean, half our children are born in marriages, which today, well, they're not marriages, and they'd be considered illegitimate. Is the passage actually saying, you're never welcome in church, thank you. And it's not just you, but for 10 generations, you'll never be welcome, thank you very much. And what about, I mean, goodness, what about someone who's been made a eunuch, never welcome? I mean, it just sounds horrifying, doesn't it? And you say, so, so defend that one. Well, maybe we shouldn't defend, maybe we should notice some things. What about this illegitimacy thing? So think about Jesus. Think about Jesus. So what do we say about Jesus? Jesus was born of a virgin. Yeah, right. No, no, no. I'm not questioning the virgin birth. I'm absolutely not questioning the virgin birth, but I'm reminding you that everyone in his day did. Everyone in his day did. I mean, like, who do you seriously think believed that this is what happened? I mean, please, so far as everyone in that little local community, the gossip and the gossip that would have gone on, he's illegitimate. Wonder who the father really is, don't know. This is how God choose to come, chooses to come into the world. You see, Deuteronomy might say, you have no place. And God says, well, then that's how my son is actually going to come. That's progressive revelation. That's saying first time round, you didn't get quite how much I love you, did you? And, and, and you say, Brian, can you, are you sure that that's the way you should interpret it? Well, look at how the early Christians act. So, so they, they're in this world where one of the absolute horrors of that world is the practice of what was known as exposure to the elements, unwanted children. You could absolutely legally, nothing to stop you doing it. I mean, not if you were Jewish, but they were part of the Roman world. They were conquered by the Romans. Absolutely legal in the Roman world. You didn't want a child. You just left them to the elements. If they survived, lucky them, then they were meant to survive. But otherwise, I mean, the vast majority of those children died. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Well, we know from records that a disproportionate number of female children were done that because it was a huge disadvantage to be born a woman in, the, in those years. But we also know that a lot of people in a lot of families where the birth of the child was questionable, the husband wasn't quite sure that this child actually would be his. Those were the children who were exposed to the element, the, the ones who were thought to be illegitimate, whose birth was unfortunate. They were just left outside to die. And we know that one of the things that the early church was renowned for and one of the reasons why, in the end, it won the heart of the empire over 
was that the early Christians routinely went in and rescued those children and raised them as their own. You see? You know, they didn't read Deuteronomy 23 as saying exclude. They, if, in fact, if you said to them, but hold on, why are you doing that? These children are illegitimate. These children shouldn't be here. They should be excluded for 10. They, they would say, oh, please, you, you, you're misunderstanding the passage. The passage is really, the, the concern of the passage is, let's try and have stable families. That's good for everyone. I mean, that's, that's actually all that the concern of the passage is. Let's try and have stable families, and that is a good thing. But, oh, my goodness, if someone going through this trauma, of course, we, we will take them in as our own. They become our own children, and we love them, and we care for them, and we look after them. Do you see that's progressive revelation? So you start in Deuteronomy 23, you're excluded for 10 generations. Actually, Messiah comes as the excluded one. Actually, the church has this practice, especially looking out for those people. Or what about, and sorry to talk about things like castration and so on, and maybe it's not what you came to church today to, to, to kind of think about, but, but very fascinating. No one who's been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. Well, that's what it says. What's the concern? Oh, the concern's easy to understand. It's not difficult to understand. Here, the Israelites are their new people. They're coming together as the people of God. And they look at a society where pretty much in every royal court, routinely members of that court would be castrated. If you had any position of responsibility, you were considered too great a threat to the king unless that was done to you. So it's a widespread practice, and it's a practice that continued until relatively recently in many parts of Asia many other parts of the world, and largely in royal families. So the Israelites are told, anyone who's had that happen to them can't be part of the people of God. And, and you can think of it like that, but they would have said, no, actually, what we hear is we must never do this to anyone. We must never do this to anyone because it's a terrible thing to do that to someone. Don't you ever have that practice. Now, Revelation is progressive, and we struggle to understand how deeply God loves us. So in take one, it comes across in like this fairly judgmental one. But keep reading on because the Bible keeps reading on, and it self-corrects for us, as it were. And you come to to Isaiah, because very often we think that it's only with Jesus that everything changes. In this one, it's actually quite interesting. In Isaiah, in Isaiah 56, 4 and 5, and Isaiah is one of these great prophetic books. It's written in the early 700s. It's written, uh, the Assyrians have, have conquered the northern kingdom, and Israel is terrified that something awful befalls her. But Isaiah comes and reassures that, that beyond all the judgment that will come, there will be another day, and he foresees a day when the Messiah will come. And so, so here we are, and we're in Isaiah 56. Isaiah 53 has just been a few chapters before this. It's a wonderful prediction of the Messiah who will come. And, and what's going to happen when this new order comes in? Isaiah 56 verses 45 says, To the eunuchs, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Oh my goodness, take that, Deuteronomy 23, 1. You know, as Yahzai comes and says, you who are eunuchs, I will give you, you're not able to have children of your own, Take heart, I will give you a memorial that will last forever. You are precious to me. And you want to take it even further? 
Well, go to Acts chapter 8. Think of one of the most remarkable conversions that take place in the New Testament. The church is just getting underway. And Simon one day is just told by the Spirit, you must go to the desert road, and, and, and there in that desert road, just wait and I will do something. And as, as Simon goes in obedience, there's a man and he's in a chariot. And we're told three things about this man. Well, he's, he's a man, he's significant dignitary. He's reading the Bible. He just happens to be reading Isaiah chapter 53, which speaks about the Messiah who's going to come. And, and Philip, has, as, as he gets there, notice that this is an Ethiopian man, and he is a eunuch. Oh, my goodness. So here's this miracle, and it's taking place. Let's just think of these descriptors of this man. He's Ethiopian. He's black. Now, now, race wasn't a big deal in the early church. Let's be clear about that. Later generation, he, there's a bit of debate about whether he was a Jewish proselyte. He just, just might have been. He's not, not, not quite certain about that. But as Philip goes to him, he discovers he's also a eunuch. So, so, so here are three things that disqualify this man, if you think about it. He's black, he's Gentile, or he's not Jewish, and he is a eunuch and he's one of the first people who gets miraculously converted to Christianity. Take that, Deuteronomy 23, 1. Thank you very much. Do, do, do you see what, what we've been told? Here, this revelation is progressive. It moves along. And we start off, and the intention is, hey, listen, we must never have things like castration. Said, well, well, anyone who is must be completely condemned by God. No, 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 no. Isaiah says, no, 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 you're blessed by God. And Acts 8 says, actually, especially welcomed into the people of God. When we read the Bible, we must remember that the very first temptation that the humans succumbed to back in the Garden of Eden was that the serpent came to them and said, eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you do, you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And as Adam and Eve ate from that tree, they did it because they wanted to be like God. Why do they want to be like God? So that they would no longer need God. So they would be able to say, we can go through life and we can manage everything else thank you, on our own. Thank you very much. And the first temptation in life is always to think that you can live life outside of a relationship with God. Let me tell you, that's the first temptation and it remains with us to think that we can sort things out on our own. When we read the Bible, we are reminded that you can't do ethics or you can't live ethically outside of relationship with God. And we will come into so many situations in life where we are not quite sure what it is that we should do. And that first sin was to say, I know enough and I've got it. And I've got everything sorted out and I've got it worked out and I know what to do in every situation. And as we read the Bible, we actually see that Revelation is progressive and we progressively recognize more and more that God is more loving than we ever imagined, more loving than we ever imagined. And so when we ask ourselves, what should we do and what must we do, we must come back to James chapter 1, James 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask from God, who gives freely and without judging. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask from God who gives freely and without judging. 
And I guess if you say, so how do you make sense of the Bible? Well, it's not that hard to see what the concerns are. How do those concerns work their way out in the 21st century? Well, we see that sometimes in very different ways from the ways in which, which people first thought. And some of the ways in which they get worked out change over time, and that's fine. And if any of us lacks wisdom, let us ask God, who gives freely without judging, and he realizes that life marches along and that slowly over time we as people recognize more and more that God is love, God is love, God is love. And because God's love is greater, because God's love is greater, expressing that love to others takes different forms and different times and we need the wisdom that only God can give. So as you go out into your week, go out prayerfully, go out thoughtfully, go out asking wisdom from the God who is love. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you are more loving than we imagine. We sometimes want to read your text as a frozen text and we get hung up because there's a specific verse and we want it frozen like that forever. But we know that's not how it works. And we know that there is your, your heartbeat of love that goes behind everything. Give us the wisdom to know how your, how your love works out in our life, works out in the lives of others and help us to be instruments of love in your world. We pray it in your name. Amen.